people pray with me as we continue. Father, what a great reminder of a God who is faithful in our weakness, a God who is faithful in our wrestling, a God who is faithful in our our unbelief, our doubt, our fear, even our turning away from you. As Paul said, let every man be a liar, God remains true. And you are the faithful one. As we consider even this sweeping story in Genesis, we're reminded of a God whose eternal counsel stands and who in the ebbing and the flowing of the generations and circumstances, events, a God who continues to be focused and resolute in accomplishing those purposes. And Father, even as we are those upon whom the ends of the ages have come, those who have the glorious privilege of of being able to look back and see that you did indeed bring all things to their climax in the Lord Jesus Christ and your triumph in him. How much encouragement, how much resolute steadfastness ought we to have as we look to the, the day of consummation the day of complete renewal when all things are summed up in him. The God who proved faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the people of Israel, the God whose purposes and hand never wavered. The God who proved to be yes and amen in Jesus our Lord is the God who will see all things attain to their eternal destiny. I pray, Father, that we would live in light of that, that whatever the days bring, whatever we encounter moment by moment, that our hearts would be steadfast before you and that we would live in light of that glorious day, that we would be faithful witnesses of it, not simply in the words that we speak, but in the demeanor of our hearts in the steadfastness of our lives, in the living testimony, not only just individually, but as your people in the world. What a glorious privilege and what a high calling. So minister to us as we continue to worship you through the ministry of your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we looked at at uh, the Jacob story in terms of his exile, and, and I mentioned to you before that Jacob um, very much needs to be viewed and his story needs to be viewed through the lens of Israel's story that will come later. Even as we see today that he becomes the man Israel, we see in the circumstances of his life a kind of prophetic Uh, anticipation of what it is that Israel itself would endure. And certainly the people of Israel would have read uh, this Genesis narrative through that lens. So these are not just a bunch of remote, distant, uh, ancient 
stories about foreign people that we know nothing about and don't really care about. This really is the record of the unfolding of God's purposes in the world that ultimately find their significance in relation to Christ. And I know you've all heard me say this many times in the past, but but when Jesus said, all of the scriptures testify of me, this is what he was talking about. Not simply a handful of proof texts here and there scattered throughout the Old Testament, but the whole unfolding story that had Israel at its center would ultimately find its its focal point, its its ultimate significance and realization in him. And so as we read uh, not just the Jacob story, but as we read through all of the Genesis narrative and more generally the Old Testament, we need to read it in that historical and ultimately salvation historical setting. So last time we looked at Jacob's exile his time in Haran, which came because of the alienation between him and his brother, essentially Jacob obtaining the birthright and the blessing of his father, he became the covenant heir. And that transference, that kind of upsetting of the natural order created this hostility between him and Esau that resulted in him uh, departing from the land. And he spent 20 years serving his uncle Laban, again, as a kind of prophetic picture of what would happen to Israel. He was oppressed. He was, in a certain sense, not enslaved, but he was oppressed and mistreated. He was defrauded. He was exploited. And yet through all of that, God had gone with him. The God who had met him at Bethel said, I will go with you wherever you are. And whatever circumstances you find yourself in, I will be with you. And so in spite of all of the odds and in the very context of, of weakness and incapacity, uh, he had no power over Laban, and yet God ended up plundering Laban's house and prospering Jacob so that when he left and finally began his return to Canaan, he left with a huge company of people and thousands of animals. You see all of the animals that he marked out as an offering uh, present to give to his brother Esau. And that's just a small portion of his flocks and his herds and this huge company of of, um, property and people that accompanied him. So he went as one man into exile and he came back as it were as the beginning of a great nation. And that too is very much a picture of what would happen with Israel as they go down uh, into Egypt as 70-some people, and they come back as a massive nation, plundering the wealth of the Egyptians. So after the 20 years, God said, it's time for you to return. And as he had departed from Bethel, and we considered the Bethel episode last time, he will ultimately return to Bethel. But as he's making his way back from Haran, uh, he stops at the river Jabok, which is on the east side of the Jordan River, essentially across from Shechem. If you think of the Sea of Galilee in the north, the Dead Sea in the south, with the Jordan River between them, uh, the, the Jabok River is roughly halfway between those two, north to south. So he stops and he camps at that river, and that becomes this occasion Mahanaim. And I titled this this uh, treatment of, of his return into Canaan according to these particular titles that are associated with these places and the significance of it. 
And as I said last time, it's very important to think of these places and these events and the names that are given to them uh, as they contribute to the story. They're not just arbitrary. It's not like Denver, Lakewood, Chicago. The, these place names carry a very uh, profound meaning in terms of, of what they contribute to the unfolding of the story. So the first great encounter that Jacob had as the covenant heir, the newly uh, recognized covenant heir fleeing the land, was at Bethel. Now returning, his next great encounter with God is at Mahanaim slash Peniel, and we'll see how those two things are related. And as I say, the context for this situation and all of what transpires there is Jacob's um, fearfulness over his impending encounter with his brother. He actually, as he's coming back to the land, he knows he's got to deal with his brother. He sends messengers uh, to to Esau to say, hey, you know, I'm coming, and, and, and he, but he doesn't know how this is going to play out. And in fact, when he hears that Esau is coming with a large company of people, he immediately becomes afraid of what's going to happen to him. So this is Genesis 32. Let's read a little of this. And we'll actually go through um, into chapter 35 at least today. So Genesis 32 says, Now as Jacob went on his way, this is him returning to the land of Canaan, the angels of God met him. And Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim. Mahanaim means two camps, but this I am ending, Mahane is the word for camp, the Hebrew word for camp. But this I am ending is where there is a plural, but in a paired way. So it's not just two camps, but it's two corresponding camps is the idea. Where things occur in pairs, you see the plural treated that way, like ozen for ears, oznayim, pair of ears. Not just two ears, but two paired ears. And so it's not just two camps, but two corresponding camps is the idea, and we'll talk about that. This is God's camp, so he named that place Mahanaim. Obviously, he's camped there as well. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, and commanded them, saying, Lest you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female servants, and I have sent to you to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he's coming to meet you. Four hundred men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him, and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. And he said, If Esau comes to one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. He's dividing you know, the people and the property that are with him so that at least one would be saved if one of them is attacked is the idea. It's a strategy on his part. And then he cries out to God and he says, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who did say to me, return to your country, to your relatives, and I will prosper you. This is what God said to him in Haran. 
I am unworthy of all the loving kindness, your faithfulness covenantally is the idea, and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me, the mothers with the children. For you did say, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. This is the Abrahamic promise. Okay, well, we'll stop there at this point. But he ends up spending the night there. So this idea of Mahanaim in the first place refers to two corresponding camps, one that is obviously uh, Jacob's camp, but the fact that it's also God's camp. But there's a second significance to it, which is two camps referring to the, the Jacob's dividing of his own company into two camps. His property, his family, his servants, he divides them up into two camps as well. So there's a second significance to it. But as I say, primarily it speaks of God's presence with Jacob in his camp. It's a dual encampment. But lastly, also in this Mahanaim idea is the in two encampments within Jacob's own mind. On the one hand, he implores God in view of God's faithfulness God has just spent 20 years prospering him against all odds with his brother Laban. In his position of powerlessness, God gives him the wealth of his oppressor. And now he's crying out to God with this, that history, that background, and that confidence. And yet, in a context of fear, he's conflicted in his own mind. He recognizes God is present with him. And he cries out to him covenantally. You know, he cries out to him with the confidence that God has been faithful to him covenantally, not just to him as a man, but in view of Jacob's purposes, Jacob's role in God's purposes for the world. But he's already, prior to that, divided his camp into two camps, his company into two camps. And now after this prayer, he will again show, you know, this, this kind of conflictedness in his mind as he takes his wife and his children and, and all that were with him and he sends them across the river. So first he divides this company of people, his servants, his animals, all that into two camps. Then after this prayer in which he beseeches God in view of God's own covenant commitment and faithfulness, he then sends all of his family across the river so he's left alone. In all of those things, we see this idea of Mahanaim. The God who is there, but the God who is disbelieved. The God who is present, but the man who is conflicted in his mind. The man who hedges his bets. The man who, out of fear, strategizes his own hope of, of deliverance, his own self-remedy. And this idea of Mahanaim plays out throughout Israel's history. As I say here, you see it as the site of Ishbosheth's coronation. Remember when Saul died, Abner, Saul's general, takes Ishbosheth 
Saul's son and crowns him as king in Israel. David is crowned as king in Hebron, and he essentially only has the small tribe of Judah that he's presiding over. Ishbosheth then is a rival king. He's continuing Saul's throne, Saul's kingdom, but he's crowned by Abner at Mahanaim, two camps. Israel is a divided entity. And then later, that's where David flees when Absalom raises an insurrection against him, David's son, and David is driven from Jerusalem. He makes his camp also at Mahanaim, two camps. And then later, uh, when Jeroboam, God gives the, the ten northern tribes to Jeroboam when Israel is split into Israel in the north and Judah in the south, with Rehoboam as king in the south, Jeroboam as king in the north, Jeroboam establishes Mahanaim, Peniel is the place, that becomes the name of the city, but that site, he establishes it as one of his two leading cities. The other that Jeroboam establishes his first capital and the site, uh, uh, the focal point of his own rebellion against God and his own unfaithfulness, his idolatry, which, as I mentioned last time, is associated with Bethel as well. He built altars at Dan and Bethel. But Shechem is where he established his first foothold and we'll, his, his primary palace, his primary kingdom initially. Later, Samaria would become the capital. But under Jeroboam, his first place where he set his seat of his reign was Shechem. And we'll see the significance of Shechem also in this. So these places become very important, and we should keep track of how the scripture keeps drawing on them. They become symbols. Uh, they, they have prophetic or, or you know, uh, historical significance in, in the, the playing out of God's purposes centered in Israel. So this is the situation at Mahanaim. And Jacob then, as I said, he's already divided the company. Now he cries out to God, and we just read that prayer. But as we continue reading, it says in verse 13, so he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had from him a present for his brother Esau. And I won't read all of that, but you can see all of the animals, the hundreds of animals that he sent and he sent them in waves, you know, so that they would come to Esau. And basically his hope was that these things would appease Esau. Remember, he had fled under the threat of Esau wanting to kill him. So he's hoping these presents will appease his brother. So let's pick this up um, then in verse 22. It says, now he arose that same night. This is after he's dispatched these servants with all of these flocks and herds to go and to meet his brother Esau. He arose that same night. This is after his prayer. And he took his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, this man that he's wrestling with, he touched the socket of his thigh so that the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Basically, his hip is taken out of the socket. 
Yeah, and then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. This is the man that Jacob is wrestling with. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless and until you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Yisrael, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And then he blessed him, blessed Jacob there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Peniel, same place, just different spelling, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. So Mahanaim then becomes Peniel, the face of God, through this strange encounter. Jacob prays and asks the covenant God to protect him, and the answer that God gives is in this kind of strange wrestling match that takes place. And the text has him wrestling with a man. But Jacob understands that this individual, and as we'll see in Hosea, this individual is treated as an angel, but he represents God's person, God's power, God's purpose, God's intent. It's not necessary to say this is the pre-incarnate Christ or you know, this is Yahweh himself. Um, obviously, God is spirit. But the point is, is that this encounter, Jacob discerns, this is God himself. This this, this circumstance, this event, the, the way it plays out, even the changing of my name, my hip being out of... So all of the significance of this, this event is God's answer to me. That's the sense in which he sees God's face. Uh, it doesn't mean, you know, literally God's face, but the face of God represents who God actually is and his disposition. He turns his face in favor. Think about the Aaronic um, blessing, right? Lift up the light of your countenance, your face. Lift up your face upon us. And so that's the idea here. It's not that he sees a literal face. Oh, that's what God looks like. It, it's that in this encounter, he sees something about God, a truth, an insight into God that he didn't know. He sees the face of God in that way. So through this wrestling match then, which Jacob ends up prevailing in, he is given a new name, Yisrael. And as I said last time, Yisrael can be translated two ways. The ale, ale means God, but it can be the subject or the object. So Yisra, he prevails or he triumphs or he strives in a prevailing way. Ale is God the subject or the object, and both can be true. He prevails with God or with respect to God, or God prevails. And here both are intended. And the reason I say that is because the commentary of the man to in, in giving him this name Yisrael is you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. 
And it's not just prevailing with men in the sense of this angel, but even his triumph over Laban. He's pointing him back to the fact that he has triumphed with men. He's striven with men and prevailed. Esau's coming. You should expect as you have triumphed with men, you will triumph. But you have striven with God and with men and have triumphed. And yet he triumphs from out of a, a, a condition of, of absolute incapacity. I've never had my hip out of socket, but I've anecdotally heard stories of that happening, and you don't move. It, it's, it's incredibly painful. How are you going to wrestle with your hip out of socket? And he remained, he had a permanent lameness as a result of that. So the point is, is that this triumph with God is because of God causing him to triumph. And that becomes Israel's legacy going forward. Israel will be the people who triumph because of God's intent that they would triumph. And they triumph out of a posture of absolute incapacity. As I've said before, Israel is more speaks to a principle of human relationship with God and God's intent in the human race more than an ethnic biological people. And I'm not denying the Israelite people, but in the first instance, Israel is the man, and it's a name given to the man to to in a sense certify and 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 make forever you know, present and declared the relationship between God and his covenant people, Yisrael. If you look at Hosea in his reference uh, in, in chapter 12, it gives a little bit more insight into how we should understand this. And part of the reason why I mention this is that on the face of it, it can seem that uh, Jacob is 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 kind of acting in a presumptive way. I'm not going to let go of you until you bless me. A kind of prideful, arrogant sort of way, insisting that God bless him in a certain way. Uh, but Hosea's take on this gives a slightly different impression. And just a very quick background on Hosea. He's primarily, he's a contemporary of Isaiah. He's primarily writing concerning the impending captivity of the northern kingdom. The fact that God is going to judge and cast off uh, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, and send them into exile, but yet he will restore them. So chapter 12, verse 1, Hosea, Ephraim feeds on wind. Ephraim was a leading tribe in the northern kingdom. So this isn't just the tribe of Ephraim. This represents the northern kingdom of Israel. Ephraim feeds on wind and pursues the east wind continually. He multiplies lies and violence. Moreover, he makes a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. Assyria will end up being the power that will conquer and take into exile Ephraim. But Yahweh also has a dispute with Judah, the southern kingdom, and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. For in the womb he, Jacob, took his brother by the heel, and in his maturity, in his adulthood, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed, weeping, and sought his favor. 
he found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with him, I think should be the reading. It's the NES says us, but I think the better reading is him. It, it's a very slight change in Hebrew from one to the other. Um, but I think in context, the better understanding is Jacob found God at Bethel, and there God spoke with him, even Yahweh, who is the Lord of hosts. The Lord is his name. Therefore you, Ephraim, return to your God. Pointing them back to their own history. And even, again, Judah is mentioned here that they too will go into exile. They too will be condemned. Both kingdoms are appointed for the same outcome. But eventually Ephraim will also be restored. Ephraim, how can I give you up? Right? But the point of bringing this up is just to say that in Hosea's prophecy, he doesn't ascribe this action on Jacob's part as a matter of pride, but as a matter of, of weeping and, and pleading, imploring God. In other words, he's asking for a blessing out of a posture of weakness and neediness and fear and insecurity and dependence. Jacob recognizes that he needs God's help, and yet there's this double-mindedness with him in that even while acknowledging God's faithfulness to the covenant, he's still hedging his bet, and we all tend to do that. Just like the demoniac's father, right? I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. So Jacob didn't fight and overcome God. Rather, he fervently implored God's blessing and would not let go of him until God helped him in his need. And it, it would be the idea of there is no other resource, there is no other remedy. I am owning you for what you have promised and pledged. I won't let you go. And the result was that he named that place face of God, Peniel, and God named him Yisrael. Because Jacob had experienced an encounter that showed him his God in a new and a profound way, a way he had not encountered before. He had in that way seen the face of his God, and he prevailed to obtain his blessing because God had given him his favor and triumph. God had met him in his weakness and caused him to prevail, not by overcoming his weakness, but by giving him victory in his weakness. And that's an important distinction. We want the grace of God to be like the spinach that Popeye eats that makes him strong. Paul himself thought that if God would remove the things that made him weak, he would be better able to fulfill his own calling on behalf of Christ. And God said, no, you got it wrong. Powers perfected in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. And Paul said, now I get it. Now I can rejoice in my persecutions, my infirmities, my difficulties, my weakness, that the power of Christ might rest on me. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. So Jacob then goes on to meet Esau, and I won't read that account, but it ends up being a blessed reunion together. Esau says, I have plenty. God has blessed me as well. I don't need your stuff. Uh, but it, but it's, a, it's a blessed reunion of these two boys. And they will end up being present um, at the burial of their mother. 
there's a reunion between Jacob and Esau in that sense. But as he now crosses the Jordan River, Jacob comes to Shechem. And this becomes the event that we read in uh, chapter 34 with the daughter Dina, Jacob's daughter. And again, it's kind of a, a strange account. We say, well, why is that in there? And that's always the question we should be asking is, why does the scripture choose to record this episode? It's got to somehow contribute to the story, the larger story. It's not just arbitrarily selected. It's it's in there for a particular reason. And I think the reason is to show the significance of Shechem most narrowly, but to also, in in a kind of, again, presaging, prophetic way, the circumstance between Jacob and these Canaanite people at Shechem, there's the man Shechem, but it's the place Shechem, uh, and they are Canaanites, is a prefiguration of what Israel will face in its own challenges with the Canaanites. This is the way, again, Israel would be reading this account. This is a first account of the threat to the covenant and to the covenant people posed by the Canaanites. So he comes to Shechem, he builds an altar, as Abraham had also built his first altar at Shechem, but God tells him, no, you need to return to Bethel. But while he's at Shechem, um, this man Shechem, who's the son of the ruler there, uh, forces himself on Dina, and but he loves her, he's infatuated with her, he wants to marry her. And so they make this plan that, um, okay, if all the men of Shechem are circumcised, in a sense kind of bind themselves to become a part of us, then we'll give her to you. And the Shechemites are saying, yeah, let's do this because then we can get in with them and then we can plunder all their stuff, right? Again, it's Israel's story with Canaan very much. But that's what happens in chapter 34. And that circumstance that threatens the covenant people and even the integrity of the covenant, first of all, it pointed to the fact that Jacob's exile wasn't to end there. That could not be the place of returning to his father's house and the promised land. And God will tell him again, go to Bethel. When he left Bethel going to Haran, he said, if you bring me back to this place, and God said, I will bring you back to this place. So he has to come as far as Bethel. But also, as I say, it served a prophetic purpose, anticipating Israel's future circumstance in Canaan. Shechem and the episode there portrayed the danger and covenant compromise of close relations with the Canaanite people. So the man Israel, Jacob, instructed all who were with him when God calls him to leave Shechem and to go on to Bethel. Jacob instructs everyone with him to abandon all their idols and to consecrate themselves as they depart for Bethel. Opening verses of chapter 35. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and live there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you there when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you. Purify yourselves. Change your garments. 
and let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. In a sense, he buried them. He left them at Shechem, a place that represented Canaan, it's it's in the Canaanites, their idolatry, their unfaithfulness, their being outside of the covenant people. So it's a prefiguration of, again, what's going to happen with Israel. And when God even tells them to go in and take the land, he says, be very careful that you don't embrace their gods, their idols, that you don't take them in and make them, give them uh, your sons to their daughters and their daughters uh, to your, uh, uh, vice versa, your, you know, intermarry with these Canaanite people. You must utterly burn down their Asherim and tear down their altars. You must have nothing to do with their practices. And this is an early picture of that, how any kind of involvement will will be a threat to the covenant. So anyway, Jacob ends up returning to Bethel, bringing his journey full circle and proving out the mutual oaths that he and God made to each other there two decades earlier. For his part, God had kept his promise to the covenant heir, causing him to prevail through great struggle, thus showing himself to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What happened at Mahanaim was really just a kind of intense version of what had happened at Haran. Jacob had struggled and suffered in his exile, and yet God had caused him to prevail in a context of weakness and incapacity. And in that way now, God had shown himself to be the God of Jacob, Yisrael. This would be the nature of the relationship between God and Israel. He had become Israel learning during his exile and coming to its climax at Mahanaim what it means to triumph and flourish through embracing and serving the covenant God in trusting dependent faith. God had kept his promise, and Jacob had also said, if you will bring me back here, then indeed you will have shown yourself to be my God. And so Israel's return to Bethel, Israel meaning the man Israel, saw both covenant parties reiterating their covenant commitment to one another. God in reiterated oath and Israel in reenactment. And if you look down to verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram, and he blessed him and said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And thus he called him Israel, and God also said, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, kings shall come forth from you, and the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you. I will give the land your descendants after you. A restatement of the covenant blessing, of the covenant ownership. Jacob is indeed the covenant heir. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And for his part, Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a libation on it and poured oil on it. And so he named the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. That's a repeating of the same thing that Jacob had done before. So it's all gone full circle. He left from Bethel. These things happened. God covenanted or, or you know, certified the covenant with him. Jacob set up the stone, put oil on it, 
testified that it was Bethel, the house of God, left. He's come back. The same thing's been done. The text wants you to see that this has all come full circle. But now Jacob has become Yisrael. He left as one person, came back incredibly wealthy, so to speak, prosperous, having plundered his oppressor because of the God who is faithfulness to the covenant. So Jacob's prayer in the midst of this episode really helps us to see that this is very much a covenantal issue. This is very much tied to God's faithfulness to his covenant, not just God being a good God who's good to human beings, but this is God's integrity. He's faithful to his covenant. That's the lens through which we view Mahanaim and Peniel. Again, this two camps idea the contrast between Jacob, his unfaithfulness, God's faithfulness, the duplicity in his own mind, the wrestling between God and Jacob that results in this outcome of Peniel. So Jacob now henceforth is Israel, and the nation of Israel is just the corporatizing of this. This is the lens through which we need to understand Israel, its relationship with God their history with God, the way in which things play out. He had contended with God and men and prevailed, not by his own strength, but in abject weakness and dependence on the favor and power of his covenant God. And so it would be with the covenant nation descended from him. Israel would prevail because God would cause them to prevail. But they would ultimately not prevail in themselves. The nation itself would be an utter failure. But God would cause Israel in its abject failure to prevail by bringing out of Israel an Israelite in whom Israel would attain its own triumph out of weakness. And he himself, as Israel's true embodiment, as the singular seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he too would grapple with God and men and emerge triumphant out of abject weakness. We often think again of Jesus as floating above the fray. He was a man of sorrows well acquainted with grief. He was anything but what Israel expected their triumphant Messiah to be. He lived as a man of weakness. He lived in dependence on his father. He lived in dependence on the power and provision of the Spirit. He was a man of prayer, a man of devotion, a man who wrestled with his father and who wrestled with men and prevailed out of the greatness, uh, the, the greatest possible subjugation and, and event of weakness, which was the desecration and humiliation of Calvary. This is the king of the Jews. The greatest subjugation and, you know, crushing was the triumph of God. And that's already we see in Jacob, how is it that God will triumph through his people? It will be in the most unexpected way, through the absolute weakness. How do you prevail with God when your hip's out of the socket? How can possibly be the excruciating, humiliating, almost unbelievable, you couldn't even watch Rome's crushing of this man on the cross and see that as the triumph of God over the powers and the principalities, but that's exactly what it was. So already this early in the, in the Old Testament, we're getting a picture of how God would do what he would do. 
and what it means for us to be sons in the Son, right? What it means for us to be the heirs of that covenant blessing. We always want God to make us strong. Paul himself had to learn that lesson. God, I can be more effective if you will make me strong. Take away this messenger of Satan to buffet me, the things that afflict me, that oppress me, that work in my mind. Take away my depression, my anxiety. Take away all these things that are working in my head because then I'll be cleared, I'll be freed up to be about your work. And God says, no, that's not how it works. And that's something that our that the church and our culture needs to learn because we're all about the triumph of everything going well, right? And we're told that that's what God has for us. But how do we find all triumph in what appears to be anything but triumph? Jesus' generation looked at him and they said, this is the blessed of God. He's smitten and afflicted of God. He's under God's curse. Well, let's close then in prayer. Father, it is so needful that we turn our notions on their head. Not only the notions that come to us naturally in our natural humanness, our sense of how things ought to be, our things, our sense of uh, how you have intended things to be. Father, even the prevailing cultural influences, sadly, even in the church, that tells us that if we will be faithful, if we will believe you, if we will walk with you, then all of the things that are impediments, all of the things that are obstacles, all of the things in which we struggle, in which we find ourselves beaten down, all of those things will be removed that we will be more than conquerors through him who loved us in the sense of finding everything in our lives going exactly the way we would have them to be. But Paul came to understand that that triumph, that triumph in the Messiah could mean imprisonment. It could mean death. It could mean the loss of every earthly blessing. Father, we need to learn these lessons. We need to be a people who understand triumph in a new way, a people who understand the faithfulness of our God in a new way. We see multitudes departing from the faith because they've been led to believe that a faithful God will be the God of their wishes, the God of their wish dream, the God of their expectations, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob not the God of Jesus, the Messiah. Help us in these things. And Father, may we be encouragers of one another in this way. May we be those who spur one another on by constantly seeking to remind ourselves and one another of how it is that you do achieve your triumph in us, in your church, in the world, that powers perfected in weakness Father, may we yield ourselves willingly and may we do it with great joy. We thank you, we love you, and we do pray that we would prove to be a faithful people, a truly gospel people. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.